Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle and thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com. You can also check us out at Sonic Cinema Podcast on YouTube, Apple, Google, Spotify, and other places where you may listen to podcasts. Subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, and I hope you uh, enjoy what you hear. We've got a lot of great things coming up on the podcast. You can also check me out at patreon.com backslash sonicsima. There you'll get uh, some deeper dives, including one that I'm working on on the Daniel Craig run of the Bond films. Um, there are also past ones on the Lonesome Dove series, on Jackie Chan's Police Story franchise, and a bun- as well as uh, Clive Barker's films. That's patreon.com backslash sonicsima. And I do live stream on twitch.tv backslash scuttle lemur. I, the schedule has been a bit erratic, but hopefully it'll be getting a bit more in keeping with the regular schedule. And that is at twitch.tv backslash scuttle lemur. So sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. And that's certainly the case with the movies that we're talking about now. We're going to be talking about the documentary genre. And it's a doc, it's a, it's a genre that I've talked about mainly on like best lists and talking about film festival entries that I really loved. Um, but we're going to take a bit of a deeper dive into documentaries in general with our guest today. He is the host of Thief's uh, monthly movie loop podcast. And uh, please welcome to the uh, podcast, Carlo. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Ryan. So this is your first time on the Sonic Cinema podcast, and hopefully the first of many. And uh, I'd just like to uh, give you a chance to uh, introduce yourself. Um, what led you down the road to wanting to talk about movies and to talk about the podcast in general? Well, I usually like to introduce myself with what I have in my Twitter bio, and I am uh, cinephile by heart, but... Uh, computer geek by necessity, <laughs> meaning that um, I, I work IT, and that's the, the career I chose uh, years ago. But my heart is always or has always been in, in cinema mm-hmm. and in films. So now I'm trying to, to go further with that passion. I, I think I'm like a lot of people that I, I'm, I consider myself a cinephile, but I don't have as many friends that like to dive as deep as I do in, in, in films. Mm-hmm. So I, I find myself talking alone or, or about films or, or, or talking, looking for kindred spirits on the internet. So a couple of years ago, I decided, you know, maybe I should start a podcast and, and share my thoughts, all the thoughts I have about films with other people. So I decided to, to start the movie loot, what I'm calling now the movie loot. And it's been almost two years and it's been a, a wild ride. You know, it's been great. What is the, you, you've got a very interesting structure on your podcast. Uh, what, was, what was the inspiration behind that? Well, I have, I have a great internet friend. She's not very active on Twitter right now, but I always credit her and, and I've told her so. Uh, I always credit her for being such so, sort of an inspiration for this because uh, like two years ago, I found myself, two or three years ago maybe, I found myself that I wasn't watching as many films as I 
would have wanted. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I was talking with her and she told me that she used to make like schedules of what to watch. And she, she shows monthly topics to deal with. <laughs> and she, she even told me, you know, I, I, I have already next year scheduled. Like she was scheduling films a year ahead what to watch, which I think is crazy, but I kind of took that idea and started doing monthly topics first, but then I started like mixing things up and, and choosing uh, a, an array of criteria of what to watch every month. Mm -hmm. Like every month I go with, for example, this month, uh, films that start with the letters Q or R, a, a film from the 90s. Uh, a romantic film or stuff like that film from their criterion collection whose number starts with number nine or stuff mm -hmm. like that and it's it's been really really interesting because it forces me to watch things that i wouldn't watch otherwise yeah instead of going the usual route and maybe watch uh, uh the typical things that that we stumble upon on, on the streaming services it has forced me to dig deeper and and discover classics that i might have missed or watch really obscure, hidden things that I, I really might not not have found otherwise. Mm. Yeah, I know. Uh, I know that's that's one of the things that is very. I think that's one of the things that's kind of intimidating for a lot of us now. The idea that we have so many different options. How do you? How do you kind of? force yourself into one specific direction or another. And I know on Sonic Cinema, we've got a, uh, I've got a series that I call Repertory Reviews. Used to be a form, used to be known as a movie a week. And basically, I, it basically was an opportunity for me to not only go back and revisit, re-watch and review movies that I've loved over the years, but also gave me a chance to, okay, now I'm going to finally put this movie in, I'm finally going to watch this movie for the first time or I'm finally going to watch this movie for the first time. And I, I think there are times where we need that commitment, our, our own, even if it's just for us, that we have this personal commitment to us where it's like, okay, I'm going to watch this film at some point, uh, almost whether I am ready for it or not. And uh, I, I think that's, that's, that to a certain extent, we kind of have to do that at times for ourselves. And um, I, I love that. Yeah, I mean, I, listening to your podcast, it's, it's really interesting to see the way you do that. And I love the way that you do that because of the fact that, like, the suggestions like, oh, yeah, Criterion Collection was spine with, you know, letter or the number five or something like that. It's like... I mean, there there are at least hundreds of choices that you could go to, and it's not necessarily yeah. the ones that you're going to think about. And because uh, it could be a single digit, could be one in the five hundreds, or it could be one in the thousands. You just don't know. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that discipline to lead ourselves into specific directions can be very difficult for us with so many options available. Yeah, I agree. You know, I, I used to think that I was, or at least I was before, I was very moody uh, in respect of what to watch. Like if I'm, if I was not in the mood, of a certain film or a certain genre, I might not go that way. 
but I think I've learned to adjust myself a bit mm-hmm. um, and, and, and choose whatever fits the criteria that I have for that month and, and go that way and, 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 and deal with it pretty well. But I also think that the criteria that I choose give me, uh, like you said, many options that, I, you know, I, if, if I'm not in the mood for, for a comedy, then maybe I can go with a drama. I can move things around and I can play with, with that. And I also obviously allow myself a, a certain uh, freebies that I can go and watch something yeah. that is not in my criteria. And obviously it's not, I'm not that strict. Um, but yeah, there, there's always uh, some some slack to move around mm. and, and, and play with it and not be that rigid with it. Uh, before we before we dive into today's subject of uh, documentaries, where can people uh, find you online, and where can people find the podcast? Yes, uh, the podcast is hosted by Buzzsprout. So if you write T M M L, that's as in Tiff's Monthly Movie Loot dot buzzsprout.com you can find and reach the website and there you can see all the catalog of episodes that we've released we're nearing 50 episodes in the last two years uh, you can find me personally on twitter at tfcgt that's t-h-i-e-f-c-g-t or you can follow the podcast at t-m-m-l 2021 uh, those are the main uh, places that you can contact me and talk with me and chat with me. Um, I, I always welcome uh, suggestions of what to watch. I usually, at the start of every month, I share the criteria that I've chosen and, and, and welcome uh, any recommendation of anything that people might think, you know, you should watch this film or you should watch anything uh, and see if it fits my criteria or if it's in the streaming services that I have um, available. Mm-hmm. So today's subject is documentaries, and this was one of the subjects when we first talked about having you on the uh, podcast that you brought up. And I, I have to admit, it was it was there are a lot of, there were a lot of interesting ones that you brought up, but honestly, I think this is the one that kind of piqued my interest the most, and it's because of the fact that it's it's a subject that I think sometimes we almost forget about as cinephiles to a certain extent because of the fact that it's not as immediately cinematic as like narrative filmmaking. But at the same time, and especially when you consider the six that we're talking about here, I think what's what's really interesting about these movies is that A, some of them are made by filmmakers who have made narrative films, and in some cases some legendary narrative films, but also um, they take a very... It's almost, it almost, in some of these cases, it truly is a situation where, in a way, truth really is stranger than fiction. And I, I think that's one of the things that I love about all of these choices. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And there are, there have been many times where I've watched films that, uh, narrative films, fiction films, that I think, you know, this is, um, too convoluted or this is ludicrous and then you find the real story behind that film and you find out that the uh, the truth or the real story is even weirder or, <laughs> or or even stranger so obviously when when a documentary when a good documentary taps into those stories and those 
uh, uh, weird things or, or disturbing things also. Uh, it's really interesting when it's well made. Mm-hmm. Was there a particular movie? Uh, was there a particular documentary? I know we're kind of going to hit on the one that kind of did for me when it comes to documentaries in this uh in this episode, but is there a particular one with you that you watched that sort of opened your mind up to the idea that, oh, wow, documentaries can be just as fascinating and as rich as narrative films? Well, I, I'm, I'm very, I consider myself a very curious person, so I, I like to read, I like to, to find uh, find uh, uh, about stuff, about things. I'm one of those that I'm constantly Googling things. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever I find something, I see and go to Google to check out something. Um, so there's always that 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 hunger, or that that desire to find out about about things. Um, but I, I think one the, one of the first documentaries that I can remember that I saw was Hearts of Darkness, the, mm-hmm. the one that uh, gives the, uh, the background of the filming of Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Because I saw the film, and I think it, a long time ago, and I think that the film came, this particular VHS came with the, with the documentary mm-hmm. in a dual VHS, so I saw both. And I found, I, I thought it was really interesting. It, it gave a, a, a different perspective to how I perceived the film, film that I loved anyway, but... But it added that that aspect of how real life feeds the fiction that we see mm-hmm. uh, on the screen, uh, and of all the hellish things that you see <laughs> on the on the fictional film on Apocalypse Now, the hellish things that were going on behind the camera were maybe as tough and, and as harder yeah. as, the, as, the, as the fiction itself. So I think that that's, that might, I might consider that one a gateway documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there, there have been many. I mean, the, the, one of the ones that we're going to focus on, it's, uh, I also credited it as one of the ones that really got me into it and I consider one of the most important uh, documentaries uh, ever made. So mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm going to jump in the gun, but... <laughs> no, that's all right. Um, yeah, we'll, and we'll definitely... If, if it's the one I'm thinking about, I mean, I could see any the three, but one if, there, if it's the one in particular, I mean, I couldn't agree more, and there's certainly a lot to talk about with that one. Um, and it's funny because of the fact that, like, I, you know, when I was coming up with three, you, you came up with... You had your three that you were most interested in talking about, and it's like... I'll admit, and it's like, I had to come up with, it was tough for me to come up with three because it's like, some of some of mine, like, honestly, if I'm being perfectly honest, like, my favorite documentaries are Martin Scorsese's documentaries on American cinema and Italian cinema. And it's like, those are great documentaries. They're must-sees, I think, for cinephiles. If you want to dive deep into classic films, they're a great way to start. I'm not going to talk about them in this particular case because of the fact that there's not really anything cinematic about them in terms of what Scorsese does in presenting that. But I still love them. And, you know, a a filmmaker that we're going to talk about, 
today is actually another one of my another one of my favorite film favorite documentaries and we'll talk about when we get to him but it's 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 an interesting one but I'd much rather give the spotlight to the one that we're talking about with him because I think with certainly the one we're going to talk about is more significant this was a hard one like I heck I could have probably gone with three movies just from this last year, because I've seen a tremendous amount of great documentaries that I absolutely loved. And and then there are other ones that are really obscure, but it's like, I'm not sure I would be able, if you would be able to find them anywhere, that's the thing. And it's like, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about them later. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll certainly name check some of them because I, I love so many, ones i mean hearts of darkness is an excellent example i mean i go with lost in la mancha because that one was so crazy what happened to gilliam and trying to make the man who killed don quixote at that point and the fact that he was finally able to get across the finish line and uh i think you know especially especially in the era of dvds and bonus features naturally like i think we tend to some of the documentaries that really kind of implant on us can be movies that are about movies, documentaries that are about movies, yeah. if they're well done. And Hearts of Darkness is an excellent example. Uh, there are few making of movies that are quite as impactful as that one. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I... I haven't seen Lost in La Mancha, but, but I've heard great things about it. Yeah, it's, it's, really, it's, it's really a... It's a bit of a dark comedy, which I, is kind of fitting for Gilliam. Um, but at the same time, it, it's just so many different things going wrong. It's, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was funny because I, I did get a chance to meet him at Dragon Con about 12 years ago. And I actually had him sign my copy of uh, Lost in La Mancha. And it's like he was still trying to get the, he was still trying to get Don Quixote back up and running. And, uh, you know, it's it's funny to you know it, it's funny to have that film in my brain so well ingrained in my brain, and then watch what we actually see in the final product. And it's interesting to try to see sort of like how some ideas from that earlier incarnation still make their way into the new one, and how they how they differ. But um. We've got we've actually got quite a few movies to talk about this uh, episode. We've got six, um, three for each of us. Uh, we're but we're we're gonna go somewhat in chronological order, not completely in chronological order. Okay. But yeah. we're we're basically gonna do one one each one choice of each of ours. Uh, yeah. So my first one is from 1991. It is from the great Errol Morris. It's his second film. It is Vernon, Florida. And uh, this is a movie that came on my radar um, as I was listening to the A's All Over podcast, and they got to it in uh, when it came out in America in January of 82, and I was immediately fascinated. I think I watched it on Netflix, which is where it was shortly afterwards, and I, I was fascinated by it because of the fact that it's a short movie. It's less than an hour long. And it's just about the it's just about the residents of this small town in Florida called Vernon, Florida. And there's not a particular arc. It is not anything that 
Morris is that really is led Morris here. It's basically just talking to these people and their unique perspectives on life. And one of the things that really connected with me when I first saw it was it almost reminded me of my childhood memories of the town in uh, Ohio that I lived in when I was a kid. And it certainly wasn't this small, but some of the images of small town life and life on the outskirts, sort of life where along the edges of, uh, you know, what we consider like regular city living nowadays was very much there and in my memories. And, uh, you know, it's built up a bit since then, but it that's one of the things that really connected with me. In addition to, and this is a specialty of Morris, is just how singularly unique the individuals he's interviewing are. And I, I think that's that's one of the things that's always fascinating about Errol Morris, and one of the reasons why I think he is one of the great documentarians of our time is because of the fact that he he always he always takes a very unique perspective at the character at the individuals that he's interviewing, uh, regardless of what he's interviewing them about, and presenting them authentically, and, uh, you know, not trying to, and even if they're out off the beaten path like some of the individuals in this movie are, not making fun of them either. And I think that's that's one of the important things that makes uh, Morris's work, films work so much. Yeah, I, I, I was... Just like you, I, I saw it yesterday, like I told you, I saw it last night. And <laughs> I agree with you that it, as you're watching this, this uh, interviews with these people, you're, you, you can't be more than um, mesmerized and fascinated by it because it's, uh, there's no, like I said, there's no narrative, there's no story, it's just people talking, but it's so fascinating to see this slice of a small town life of a small town city. Um, and these people talking about different things like a, a turkey hunter or mm -hmm. an elderly man on a store or this couple that, that was claiming that sand grows in a jar. Um, it was really, really uh, interesting. I also found interesting the story behind the documentary. I don't know if you if you know about it, but I, I read about it that uh, Morris, that the city became notorious because uh, people were making many um, insurance claims about losing limbs. <laughs> so they so they nicknamed the city Knob City. <laughs> that's and right. That's, that's, That's the right. reason that Morris went there to make a documentary about that aspect. And he's, he received death threats. Mm. And when he received death threats, he decided to rework the documentary and just present these eccentricities and these people just talking. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that would have been, that would have been an interesting documentary in its own right, but I think it, the way it turned into, the way this turned into essentially just, talking about this city, this town, and these these individuals. I mean, I, I think one of my favorite moments in the film is 
when he he films that church service near the end of the movie, yeah. and yeah. the minister just goes into this grammat grammatical lesson for like two or three minutes. It's like I've been in a number of church services. Now, granted, not now, granted, that's not to say I bid in a church like that one, but at the same time, it's like it's such a wild, weird aside from what what he's talking about on the ser in the sermon and it's like it's just another piece of eccentricity we get from Morris and yeah. he's not judging he's just presenting it it's like and that's have you seen any of uh Morris's other films uh fog of war okay yeah, yeah. um I would definitely recommend I mean Morris is one of the living legends of the the medium. His first film, Gates of Heaven, is notorious uh, because of the fact that it's it's about rival pet cemeteries. And uh, another one of our subjects actually, I uh, made a bet with him that if he if he would if he if Eric Morris finished that film, this other filmmaker would eat his shoe. Um, and now that, and that Earl Moore finished it, he went ahead and ate his shoe. And if you know this story, you know that who I'm talking about is, uh, Werner Herzog. And, uh, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> and, um, another documentarian, uh, Les Blank, who shot the documentary Burden of Dreams, talking about films, about making films. That was a documentary about the hellacious process of, making Werner Herzog's Fitzcarraldo. Um, he he filmed it, and I think it's available. I think it's available in Criterion. Uh, I think it, I know it's available on the Criterion that has both Gates of Heaven and Vern, Florida. It's called, it's just called Werner Herzog Eats His Shoe. And <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny, but uh, he's also, but Errol Morris has also done The Thin Blue Line, which is another very famous documentary in the sense that it actually changed the lives, quite literally changed the lives of the subjects because it's about this police shooting in Texas. And the film that Morris present gets and some of the things that, is, that are revealed there actually got them to overturn the conviction. And uh, it's that was a fascinating one. He did Brief History of Time, Fog of War, um, which is a terrific one, McNamara and the Vietnam War. Uh, and recently, like, Morris has gotten more into um, dealing with subjects uh, that we're more familiar with, like Donald Rumsfeld. I know he's got a C. Bannon uh, documentary that he's, interview that he's done, but I don't know if that's ever been released. Um, but, uh, Errol Morris is fantastic. He, he's, he's one of the most unique, uh, filmmaker. He's one of the most fascinating documentaries and documentarian filmmakers. And he had Netflix miniseries a few years ago on the MK ultra called Wormwood. That's actually really interesting to watch. Um, yeah, I, I can't recommend Morris enough. I, I do think, you know, it's funny because I, to a certain extent, Vernon, Florida is kind of, I, I would look at it as sort of a, uh, because of that personal connection I have with my uh, hometown in Ohio, 
it 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 is some it is a movie that I think I would watch and uh just appreciate as a movie to sort of reflect to sort of uh wind down from for if I'm like feeling anxious or anything like that and I I think that's that's one of the things that I really appreciate about it but um yeah I I I like like you said I mean the turkey hunter is in hearing about his stories of uh the turkey jowls that he collects is fascinating and I I love that there's some very simple uh there, there's in both this and Gates of Heaven there are some very simple um things that we hear the people say but that feel very profound in a long in a lot of ways and uh it's it's really just it's really and you know I I hope that we get like I think the last movie that Morris did that was sort of along these lines was fast cheap fast cheap and out of control which is in the mid 90s and um I hope we get back to that type of movie. I hope we get one more of these types of movies from Morris because I, I, I think this is kind of where he excels, where he's talking about um, small town, small town America, Amer just general Americans and I just the lives that they live. And it's, it's really fascinating to, uh, to, <clears throat> to watch even, even at less than an hour. Yeah, I, I agree. And what, I was reading something about, uh, it, it was actually an interview with Michael Moore where he was giving like pointers of what to do in a documentary, what not to do. And one of the things that he said was, um, let your subjects shine, let them be the, 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 the focus of the documentary. And that goes to what you were saying about how Morris in this documentary just lets the people talk. He doesn't judge. He doesn't uh, offer his insight or anything. He's just uh, putting the spotlight on these people and, and just let them talk. Yeah. And I think that that's a really, really good approach to what to what the documentary does in the end. I mean, which is just offer an insight of, of this small town, a small city. Absolutely. Uh, just one second here. Okay. Yeah, one of my uh, cats was wanting out of the room, so <laughs> now that that's done. Uh, yeah, and uh, it's funny that you bring up Michael Moore because we're, we're certainly going to have some things to talk about when it comes to, uh, when it comes to him, uh, yeah. him in particular talking about that, um, even though I absolutely love the movie. I mean, there are certainly some... You know, there there are certainly some things to talk about with regards to that particular film, um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, Vern, Florida. It it is is available in the Criterion Collection. It's on the Criterion Channel right now, and uh, I I think it's you know, and Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control was actually my first Errol Morris film, and I didn't love it, but I thought it was interesting because I'd never really seen. And I'd started, just started to get into documentaries, and uh, that was a fascinating one because it was just these very odd people with these very odd lives and these very odd passions. But the more you watch Morris's films, especially as you go back to the early ones, 
the more you appreciate that that's something that he really kind of loves. And, uh, you know, the, the film that he was, you know, Gates of Heaven is one of those famous, one of the most famous documentaries of all time. And a big part of the reason it became so well known is the uh, never ending support of Siskel and Ebert who touted the film as it was going through its festival run and is a big reason why it ended up getting recognized by people throughout the rest of the country. And uh, in the 90s, when he was doing his list for uh, Sight and Sound's greatest films of all time, Roger Ebert put Days of he Gates of Heaven as one of his 10 greatest films of all time. And... Uh, <clears throat> He, their commitment to the documentary form, their passion for the documentary form, and especially when filmmakers do a great job with the documentary form, would come alive again in Carlo's first entry on our uh, run through of documentaries. And what would that what would that one be? Well, it's the one that I was referencing a while ago. That that was another. A gateway documentary for me and it's 1994 Hoop Dreams directed by Steve James mm -hmm. and this this documentary it's interesting in terms of the background behind how, how it came to be and obviously because of what it shows and, and, and what it's about because it's supposed it was supposed to be a, a 30 minute short Mm -hmm. for ESPN and uh, about focusing on, on, on uh, young players, high school players or, or junior high school players as they were being picked to, to play at different schools and, and different colleges. And they were focusing on these two players, these two young men, uh, William Gates and Arthur Agee. And the thing is that that, that documentary as, as the filmmakers became more involved in, in their families and their upbringing and what they were dealing with, the documentary ended up being a three hour documentary film mm. through the course of five years, yeah. um, <laughs> which is uh, amazing and impressive. And for from being a documentary about basketball, it ended up being an uh, deep-seated exploration of race, socioeconomic division, inequality, class struggle, and dozen other things that are issues that are still current in, in, in America mm -hmm. and in the world. So it, it, it's really, really powerful. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why I think, uh, that, that's why I said earlier that I, I think it's one of the most important documentaries ever. Uh, I saw it in 2011, I think. I was channel surfing and, and caught it on ESPN as it was starting. I thought, you know, I've seen this in several lists, so let me see it. Uh, I, I don't think I even know what it was about. Mm -hmm. So I was really, really um, hit by it. Um, it it's there's a, there's a mixture of things that you get out of it, a mixture of emotions. I, I found it to be both depressing but uplifting yeah. uh, in the, in the same in the same time um 
I was actually, <laughs> I was talking with my wife a while ago and, and, and she was asking me about this interview and I was telling her about the, the documentaries we were going to talk about. And, and my voice was breaking as I was talking about because it's, it's really, really a, a really powerful uh, documentary as you see all the things that these young men were struggling mm -hmm. and how basketball was just like a, an alternative, an exit, a release for all the things that they were going through, um, how their families were breaking down as they were filming this, how um, they were running out of money mm -hmm. to the point that, that they cut the power in the house of one of them while they were filming. Yeah. And the documentary, the, the, the filmmakers um, gathered money to, to pay the power and, and allowed them, allowed them to, to, to continue. And, and, and it says a lot. It says a lot really about... Um, how we we deal with with race with with these economic divisions and these class divisions that that are in the US yeah um it, it's it's really 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 powerful again it's i think it's one of the most important documentaries and i think that mm -hmm. it's something that everybody must see yeah i i can't imagine this movie being half an hour long i i really can it's like I know you can easily boil it down to 30 minutes if you just focus on, you know, Chicago schools recruiting kids out of, you know, out of, out of the uh, out of, uh, more urban territory, bring them into, you know, more affluent schools and stuff like that. You could certainly do a 30-minute documentary just by that, but this, there's no way that it would be nearly as good as what we get here. And there, and the uh, decision on James and cinematographer Peter Gilbert and editor Frederick Marx's part to decide to expand this into a feature, to follow these families, because the fact is, it's like that's only one part of the story, the gang recruited. That's so much part of, if, like, you could, yeah, you could do half an hour on that. There's so much more goes into it, and, we see that in the stories of William and Arthur and their families. And, uh, you know, this was, this was a documentary that basically changed the, because of the uproar about not being nominated for best documentary feature, changed the rules of how documentary features get nominated for Oscars. Um, and uh, Siskel and Ebert were a big part of that. And the movie I was referring to where it's like, it was by one of the filmmakers here, but you know, I wanted to, to give the focus to this one is Life Itself, which is Steve James's film on Roger Ebert on his final yeah. days and about his memoir. Um, and uh, I, I think, and that's a good one. I, I really enjoy it as a cineast, as a fan of Ebert, but there's Hoop Dreams is just something on a completely different level that because of the fact yeah. that. And you you summed it up perfectly. It's depressing as well as uplifting. And it's like, I, to a certain extent, that's kind of the motto of America right now is depressing and uplifting because, uh, you know, almost the two have the two almost. And you're lucky if you get the uplifting at times. Um, but um, 
it's uh, it's it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, I you you watch this movie, you just don't under and he and Roger Ebert eventually gave put this as the best film of the 1990s, um, and uh, deservingly so. It's a fantastic film. It's a remarkable film, and uh, it's 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 one of those movies where you you just can't sum it up easily it's just like cuz it it fits into in a way that like i am i i have a particular interest in the sports genre in terms of sports movies i get excited by even even the most cliched ones it's like i have a hard time you have to really get the formula wrong for me to not really get into a sports movie and hoop dreams kind of feels like that another one of your films actually kind of feels like that too but we'll talk about that one a bit later and but the thing that is so powerful about this one is that it's not it, it feels this is one of those ones that truly feels like truth is stranger than fiction because it's like you know the natural thing that you would expect out of a movie like this is Oh, they get a chance to, you know, they they get a chance to star in high school. They do well. They succeed, and then they go off to college, the NBA, stuff like that. And yeah, that's not what happens in this film at all. <laughs> but at the same time, you feel you almost feel like because of the circumstances that they go through in this film, they're probably better equipped for life outside of the NBA than they would have been had that trajectory actually happened. And, you know, you see the way that Williams... Williams starts out out of the gates. He starts out strong. And when he gets yeah. to St. Joseph's and Arthur struggles, and you see the disparity in the way that they're <clears throat> handled by the school. And, you know, this is, this is such... A, it's such a stinging indictment on the on on the school system in America. And it's like I you know, and it's it's just it's one of those things where it's like, you know, I I think that it's it's hard to see that anybody at St. Joseph's really um comes out of this looking well and i know they were not happy with their portrayal in this yeah uh and, and i can't blame them because but honestly it's like if you're if 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 you're making arthur's family pay back tuition that they never even expected to have to pay just because of the fact that he's not that great just because at the time he was not that great of a basketball player i mean that's on you. That's not on them. Yeah. And it's like, you know, and then you see what happens with William. And it's one of the things that strikes me is that there's a lot of, in the comparisons, especially once Arthur goes to Marshall, that there's this idea. I, I think there's a little bit of nature versus nurture in this, where it's like you you see the way Pingator pushes William to try to be better, and it almost and it regresses him in a lot of ways, not just because of the injury, but because yeah. of the fact that oh, he feels like he has to get back sooner, and oh, that's gonna make it 
worse, and uh, it really puts him in more of a bind than Arthur's going to have by the end of the year, by the end of this film. Yeah, and one of the things that you mentioned um, about how, how the documentary works um, as a sports film is because it's an underdog story, and, yeah. and everybody, everybody loves an underdog story, even if the underdog doesn't come up with a quote-unquote upper hand in the end. Uh, I mean, for example, uh, let's look at Rocky. You know, yeah. uh, Rocky, Rocky doesn't win the fight in the end. Spoiler alert, but uh, <laughs> he, he doesn't win the fight. But the film is not about the fight. The film is more about how he overcomes certain other struggles and how he ends up with the girl and, and, and all of that. And just like that, this documentary, even if it starts that way, it's not about these two kids making, a, making it to the NBA in the end. I mean, it yeah. started like that, but it's not about them making it to the NBA. It's about how they get out of perhaps the, the, the life that they're living or the situation that they're at, um, whatever pressures they're getting from coaches, from families, from, from expectations, from, from whatever. And I think everybody can identify with that because we all, we, I think we've all been in that place. We've mm -hmm. all had dreams. We've all had aspirations and expectations of what we wanted to be at some point. And not necessarily those things came to be. Yeah. Uh, so to see um, these two kids struggle, but m kind of make it in the end, even if, it, it, I mean, it, teaches us to we have to adjust our expectations as our life goes on yeah. um if we don't get our dreams we can just uh defeat ourselves and say okay it's done um, there's, there's no reason to live anymore now we we have to adjust our expectations to say okay this didn't work out but i'm going to work towards this now mm -hmm. um and and it's interesting how they both adjusted i've, I've read a couple of things about where they are, where they're at now. Uh, I think I read that William is a, a pastor at a church right now. Um, I read that Arthur had had certain uh, legal issues, uh, but but he was trying to start a, a a company. I think it was an apparel company, a clothing company, or something mm. like that. Um, but they're moving on. That's that's the point. They're moving on, and and and. Again, we all need to do that when things don't work out the way we want. We all need mm. to uh, adjust our expectations and, and, and say, okay, what's the, next, what's the next thing that I can do? Yeah. I know I, you know, I, I, know I certainly struggled with that um, coming out of uh, college, especially because of the fact I had very specific things I wanted to do. I wasn't quite sure how I was going to accomplish them. And it was, a, is, it was difficult. And it's like, I just didn't necessarily have the tools at the time in terms of my personality, in terms of the type of person I was to make that happen to me. And the result is I got, you know, I got stuck in a job that, you know, was like, oh, I don't really want to do this, but it ended up working out to the point where it's like, not only did that job give me a lot of opportunities to sometimes do some of the things that I wanted to do, albeit in 
not in a professional manner, but at least in a way that allowed me to get a chance to do things like writing music for films that we would make and stuff like that. But I also met my wife at that job too. And so the fact that, you know, and that wouldn't have happened if I wasn't at that job. And so it's one of those, and there are friends that we'll have for the rest of my life because of that. And uh, it's, it's just one of those things where it's like, yeah, I, the the remarkable the amount of access that Steve James and his crew have with the families is is amazing, and yeah. it's it's a testament to these families that they wanted their stories told, that they gave James permission to tell their stories in a way that showed the reality of the the racism of the economic struggles of the because this could very easily have been poverty porn you know it really could have been and you know <clears throat> but at the same time it's like you you look at arthur's you you look at arthur's mother and it's like what has she been doing throughout you know she we see her, she's been struggling to make sure that they get food, that they make sure, but she's also been doing something in the background that we don't even know about until later in the movie that is going to put her on a better path and put her family in a better position uh, moving forward. And it's it's one of those things where, um, and yeah, you do see, and you see the ways that, families being broken apart can have an effect on these kids too. Because I mean, you look at the Gates family, there's a lot of friction, there's a lot of trouble and there's a lot of disconnect between, you know, family members there. And then the AGs, you get a bit of that as well, but then they reconnect and it's, it's, it's fascinating. Like this movie only works if you get to know the families as well. If it's just about following William and Arthur, you're only getting a partial part of the story. Now, Grant, what that partial part of the story is interesting to see how one of them ends up thriving at first and then has things dissipate for them to where they have to struggle just to get into a point where they'll be able to get a free ride to college where it doesn't even matter if he plays basketball ever again and another one where they struggle first and then they eventually they eventually get to the point where you know it's arthur's you know in arthur's basically the player that william was in his freshman year by his senior year and uh no, it's 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 such a rich movie. It's such a wonderful. Yeah, it's such such a wonderful movie. It's one of it. There's a reason it's one of the best documentaries of all time. There's a reason it's held up and as one of the best of best in the medium. And it's I think it's one of the best. It's it's a great example of what the medium can be at the at its best. I think. Definitely agree. I definitely agree. That's why I say. Um, this is a must-see for everyone. It's, it's an eye-opener yeah. um, about a, a ton of issues that, that are um, still um, wrong 
in, in, in America and in the world. Yeah. Um, it is currently on HBO Max. I actually bought the Criterion Collection because it's like, nah, I, I, I feel comfortable enough buying this, even though it had been a while since I had seen it. And I'm glad that I own it now. And I, I know uh, William and Arthur do a commentary track for that edition. And it's like, I definitely want to hear that to see what they think looking at this film about their lives and how they feel about yeah. it. Um, <coughs> that brings us to, uh, and Steve James is just a terrific uh, filmmaker and it's all right in his own right. He did life itself about Roger Ebert. He also did another one that is really lovely called Stevie. Um, he also, he also directed uh, one of the Prefontaine movies that came out in the nineties, uh, which it's fascinating that we got two of those, but that's how crazy the nineties were. <laughs> um, so my next film is, uh, speaking of, you know, we, we, you, you brought up a uh, quote by Michael Moore earlier and, uh, Michael Moore's Bowling for Columbine is from 2002 is my next choice. Uh, like with Hoop Dreams with you, this one is formative for me not just in terms of the way I approach the documentary format, but in terms of my political uh, ideas as well, because I had been around guns for my entire life. My father was a lifetime member of the NRA. I've shot before, but, and I, I remember when Columbine happened. I remember, you know, it's like in that debate going on, this was when I really first started to get my feelings about guns and in particular access to guns really solidified watching this one. Uh, this was as much of a gut punch as any movie I've ever seen. Um, Michael Moore, obviously best known for Roger and me uh, from 1989, really put him on the map. Uh, he also did the Awful Truth TV series. He did the big one. He did, uh, after this, he did Fahrenheit 9-11 and uh, Capitalism, Love Stories, Sicko. Uh, he, he's, admittedly, I'm not as high on more um, politically as I used to be. I, I have some issues with him in terms of the way he's approached things in the past few years, but... Um, I still respect him as a filmmaker, even though this one is a bit of a controversial one because of the fact that uh, there, there are obviously some liberties right off the gates uh, that he takes out. I, I like that this is, uh, I like that there's a uh, documentary. I like that one of the commentaries on this one, I think it's the only commentary on this one actually, is, uh, or the original DVD, I'm not sure if it's on the Criterion now, but uh, there was one with interns on the film where they were talking about like some of the different things that they went through. And so this, this film, is, Bowling for Columbine, is basically looking at gun culture in America, and uh, especially through the lens of post-9-11 and post the Columbine High School Massacre in 1999. And uh, it's, this is a tough watch, but it's also... It, it captures, I don't think it's the best film Michael Moore's done. I do think that is Roger and me. But I think what this film does is it really, it really captures the 
absurdity of gun culture in America to a to a frightening degree, but also does another thing that we can touch a lot on in this film, and that is the idea of the fear, media stoking fear. And a lot of people have used this over yeah. the past few years as a catch-all for, oh, well, you know, COVID is hyped up and stuff like that. It's like, you know, and, and people use it a lot as, oh, you're letting fear drive your decisions. It's like, well, no, uh, I'm using the fact that we're in a pandemic is to drive my decisions. But um, I will say, though, this film brings up some very good points in this in, in that manner. And it's like, yeah, if you want to talk about how the media is biased towards fear, yeah, sure, I will, we can talk about that. But at the same time, there's also some accuracy to some of what they're talking about. And uh, this this movie, it's basically Michael Moore uh, wrestling, talking about gun culture, talking about um, talking to specific people, um, and uh, just just looking at uh, America's history with guns and sort of like the idea, the larger idea is like, well, what inspires gun violence? And uh, you know, it's it's always been a complicated story, and this is one that. It it doesn't make it any less messier, but uh, it's it's. I know when I first saw this film, it was opening weekend, and it was it was a packed theater. It just it just absolutely uh, floored me when I saw it. Yeah, I agree with pretty much everything that you said. Um, it, it's this is a documentary that you can see, and you can really t- you can really see more. Skills, but at the same time, and, and I really don't mean this as much as a slight, but you can see uh, his amateurship um, mm-hmm. both at the same time, which is what I think is really interesting. Yeah. Um, but I love that, however abrasive he might be, or however. Um, uh, I don't want to use the word sloppy because that's not that, but but whatever you might think about him, I love all the questions and all the points that, yeah. that he that he's yeah. trying to yeah. raise, and I pretty much agree with with most of the most of the things that he says, yeah. most of the points yeah. that he makes, um, and, and there's this this fear and and this like you said this token of fear in in, in America and how he. Goes, tries to go to the root of that and how violence is um, uh, it's pretty much the, 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 the spearhead of American politics and American foreign, foreign policies. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I love how between all the things that he brings up about the culture fear, the, the, the gun violence, um, he even goes back to... Uh, to um, list all the times that the U.S. has backed dictators in, mm-hmm. in Latin and, and Arab countries, which are facts. Yeah. And for me, if, if the, I'm a Puerto Rican and I'm a Latino, so I feel a lot of that when he brings up situations like in, in Salvador, in Chile, and lots of other countries that, that you see how the U.S. meddled with 
democratic elections and, and ousted governments to put people that ended up being dictators and, and mass murderers mm-hmm. to back up his point about how violent the culture in the U.S. is. Yeah. It, it's great. I mean, it, I mean it, it, the way he makes the, that point is great. Uh, I do have issues, as much as I love the documentary and I really enjoy it, I do have issues with the two last segments, um, which is the, 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 the Kmart headquarters mm-hmm. and the Charlton Heston interview. Yeah. Um, for, for, I mean, I love all the points that he brings up about how deep-rooted these issues are in, in America and how, I mean, this is, this is not an easy problem and this mm-hmm. is not an easy solution that you, can, that you can solve. But then you can just end that by blaming Kmart and Charlton Heston. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Kmart and Charlton Heston as, as then head of the NRA are just byproducts of that culture. Yeah. They're yeah. just a result because uh, if there wasn't, uh, I mean, the, the, the thing about Kmart, I think it's cyclical because um, Kmart maybe wouldn't be selling that much guns or Walmart or, or Costco or whatever uh, it, if there wasn't a, a prevalent gun culture before. Right. I mean, it fits itself then again, but, but yeah. it's, again, it's a byproduct. The same with Charlton Heston, I mean, and the way he ambushes both the headquarters and, and Charlton Heston, I think it's borderline to me. Uh, I like what he brings, but I am dubious about his methods on those oh, yeah. two segments. No, and I mean that, and that's that's always been one of the more controversial elements of this film in yeah. general, where it's like he he is very much a. I mean, it's it goes back to his work in the Ugly Truth, where it's like he was essentially. That that's essentially what he kind of did on the ugly truth, where it's like it was comedic, it was sort of comedic bits, serious bits for the sake of a gotcha moment. And uh, you know, it it does I, I think that is one of the things that uh I, I think I think the moment when he tries to ambush Dick Clark is probably is arguably even worse than both of those. Uh because of the fact that it's like, you know, you you had sure it's Dick Clark dick clark's name on the company but does that necessarily mean that he's in charge of literally everything and it's like i i think that's the i i think that's even the cruelest moment in the entire film when it comes to those gotcha moments i mean i will say it's like you know the the thing about kmart phasing out ammunition it's like that actually happened but it's like yeah it, it, yeah you know i i think you are i think you are right to bring up uh these criticisms because of the fact that it goes to like it goes to armchair activism that we see now in social media it's like it's one thing to you know it's like it's one thing for us to say oh it's in bad taste for the nra to yes it is in bad taste for the nra to continue on with their annual meeting a few weeks after columbine that doesn't necessarily mean that you know those type of but those type of things are tough logistically to not only put together, but also to cancel. And it's like, I, I think that's one of those things that sort of gets lost in the translation when it comes to something like this. Um, yeah, I mean, especially the Charlton Heston thing. I mean, he's, you know, it's like, if this movie had been made 10 years ago, like 10 years 
after uh, after like Newton or Newtown or Aurora or something like that, it will have been Wayne Lapierre. It's like that. That's the fact of the matter is. It's like it it will if it wasn't Charlton Heston, it will have been somebody else. I mean, and but the thing is, it's like those are that is the type of interview where it's like, yeah, it's interesting to see him actually get to talk to Heston. Yeah. Even if the ways that he does it are dubious. And it's like you you now basically what we know about Charlton Heston at the time was he it was shortly before he had uh announced that he had Alzheimer's. And so it's like you have that you now with that knowledge you look back on that, it's like, wow, really? I mean, especially if you've ever dealt with somebody with Alzheimer's, it's like, that's not the type of thing that you want to, <coughs> you know, yeah, some of the things he says in that interview are, they're they're not well-worded, but it's like, if you've ever been around people with Alzheimer's, you know, you're not really going to get well-worded, uh, are you, well-worded um, answers out of them sometimes. Yeah, but I think that's those are two of the things which um, why I said that you can see both his skills and and a bit of amateurship in how he and yeah. uh, ended up with those two segments or how he addressed those those two segments. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I think I read something where where Moore himself regretted the yeah. way he handled that that yeah. interview uh, because I think that a more skilled interviewer or, or a more skilled documentarian or more seasoned, let's say a more seasoned uh, documentarian might have gotten more out of that interview yeah. if he had handled it in, in another way. I mean, you could have driven your points uh, better if you had done it another way, mm-hmm. which I don't know because I'm not a documentarian, but 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 at least I, I praise him. And I, like I said, I, I, I want to emphasize that because I really, really think that documentary is great. Yeah. Um, and and uh, I really love that he's raising all these points and all these questions mm-hmm. through all the documentary. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and the thing is, it's like he, he's first, you know, more than a, you know, it's funny because I, he he's somebody who I, I do think sort of, he sort of skirts the line of whether he's a documentarian or whether he's, uh, you know, he's certainly been called a propagandist and you can certainly make the point, especially with something like Fahrenheit 9-11, which is really good to watch, but at the same time is very much coming from a particular point of view and a particular vantage point. But even something like that, there's a lot of humanity and there's a lot of, valid questions being brought up. I look at him more as not as much of a documentarian as almost an essayist, a video, somebody who makes video essays. I mean, I think if you, especially if you look at Rod, now Roger and Me, I think is a True Blue, really terrific documentary. Bowling for Columbine is more of an essay of here's, here's what I'm presenting and, you know, yeah, it is unrealistic, the idea of being able to walk into a gun, walk into a bank and get a gun. Yes, that is completely unrealistic, but it's emblematic of how easy it is for people to get guns in America. Yeah. I mean, that's the point. That's what it's getting at. Um, 
I think one of the most, I think easily the most impactful, uh, some of the most impactful interviews he has in this film is with uh, Terry Nichols' brother. And I forgot about that. It had been so long since I had seen Bowling for Columbine, I'd forgotten entirely about that interview. And that, that interview is just so frightening. He is, he's just such, such a madman. And then you have the... But I also... <coughs> you know, it's interesting to hear Matt Stone talk about growing up in Littleton. And uh, you hear him talk about Littleton and what type of world what type of one it is, how it inspired South Park and stuff like that. But, um, yeah. you know, and it's like, I, you know, in, in a different world, like, I, you know, and I, I do agree with you where it's like, you know, I, I think there's, there's a lot of messiness to Moore's uh, films as a filmmaker, but there's also some skill. And I think, I, I think that's sort of like, because I've seen films of, films from both, I think that's the difference between Michael Moore and Dinesh D'Souza, where it's like Dinesh D'Souza, it's like, A, first of all, it's full-on propaganda. It's also comedically inept as cinema. Like, I, I've seen a couple of his films, and they're just comedically inept. And it's like, and also they're fundamentally I haven't dishonest. had the pleasure. <laughs> yeah, it, you're, you're not missing anything. You're, you're not missing anything. <laughs> The only reason I did is because of the fact that they happened to be playing at the theater I worked at. It's like, you know what? Sure, I'll give it a chance. And I got in for free. So, you know, that's that's but you're you're not missing anything. Um he's just as annoying as a filmmaker as he is on uh social media. So um yeah. but yeah, it's uh yeah, I mean I I think this is and the problem is we haven't gotten we're 20 years away from bowling for columbine coming out and we're no closer in this discussion. In fact, we're probably even further away than yeah. ever. That's the that's the sad thing because columbine really I... should have been the end of the discussion. Like it shouldn't have it should have stopped all the discussion in its tracks and it should have been it. But no, because we always, you know, those, you know, the one sad, unfortunate thing about people in lockdown during the pandemic was, oh well, at least there aren't school shootings happening. But you know, those started back up again. It's like because of course yeah. they did because we we haven't gotten any closer to figuring out our uh, ideas with guns and. You know, it's like I'm I'm somebody who it's like I, I respect the existence of the Second Amendment. I don't think it gives you unfettered access to firearms. I just don't. I think there are reasonable but, things that you can do to prevent some of these are some of these being in place. Exactly. And that that's the thing that that um I think that the one of the sites tries to take advantage on because most, I think, the majority, the huge majority of of people that are advocating for some type of gun control, they don't want to 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 abolish the Second Amendment. No. But obviously, the other side wants to stoke that fear and say, you know, they they want to take your guns. But there has to be some control. I mean, it 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 shouldn't be as easy as just walking out into a bank or just. Yeah. Uh, um, a gun fair and, and, and you get a you get a gun without no 
background checks, no. I mean, and, and every shooting that occurs just goes to evidence that, you know, this this person was uh, mentally, uh, had, had mental issues, diagnosed mental issues, and still he had access to buy uh, dozens yeah. of guns. Yeah. And it just keeps happening. And to what you mentioned about, about school shootings and, and, and the pandemic and the lockdown, I was reading the other day, Uh, someone on Twitter posted, you know, I was a, a, a teacher and he said, I was at a school meeting and there came this situation where I said, okay, um, do I leave my door open because of the deadly virus? And somebody in the meeting said, no, you have to keep it closed because of school <laughs> shootings. Yeah. So, so you, get, you get those two extremely polarizing issues that are plaguing the U.S., yeah. where people just don't want to budge and, and, and it's just so divisive and so, yeah. I mean, it, it's crazy. But you can, and, and Moore brings this up in, in some of his stats. I mean, you look at stats in other countries where there's gun control. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how you can look at those stats and say, no, there's not an issue here. We don't have an issue. Yeah. Uh, it, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's just so many, uh, you know, I mean, I will admit it's like, this is, this is probably Michael Moore's most manipulative as a filmmaker in this movie. And I, I think that is, you know, and it's hard not to think that, but at the same time, it's like, What is the what is he trying to get us to sort of understand? What is he trying to get us to do? He's trying to get us to think more about how we as a society view gun violence. How do we view? Because you know, and this is one of the excellent points they makes in uh, Bowling for Columbine, like you were talking about earlier, the history of American imperialism over the years of overthrowing governments, installing dictators that they can, can they can be more in control of. And it's like that that isn't that doesn't happen in a vacuum. And it's like our our obsession with gun violence, our obsession with having guns, of being prepared for something is not does not exist in a vacuum. And it's hard to see that connection, but it's also one of those things where it's like so much of that is important. And it's like, do I necessarily think the Columbine school shooters were like, oh, well, it's like Lockheed Martin is here. It's like, oh, that gives me, you know, it's like, I, I don't think there's a one-to-one -one correlation, but it's like just in the, in the way this country thinks about violence and the way this country thinks about violence as a means to an end. I, I think that's the ultimate problem. And it's like, you know, yeah, it's one thing where it's like, you know, oh, so you need guns to keep you safe. Well, it's like, you know, you could do a sequel to this and talk about it in the in the era of COVID completely because it's like, okay, so you you think you need a gun to keep you safe. Well, why, why don't you feel like you need a vaccine to keep you safe from something that isn't seen? 
or you know a mask that will keep you safe from something that isn't seen and it's like i you know it is sad that we're just no closer to the end of this conversation and it's like you you see the and you know you were talking about like oh you have to have you have to have guns are going to take away your guns that that's just the nra using that media of fear to get people riled up where it's like oh you're not going to take my guns i don't want you to like you said most people they don't that's not what they want at all yeah <laughs> yeah I mean, but but again that's the 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 fear that they're they're going through to keep that control i mean there are a, a, a lot of major interest invested in in, yeah. in keeping things the way they are right now yeah. so and uh, you know, and and it's it's one of those things where it's like I think I think some of the best points he does land is regards to the the media stoking in fear that also comes into you know veiled white supremacist thought where it's like Africanized bees versus European bees and stuff like that. It's like yeah. and you know cops and you know cops where it's more on the ground versus like the comedic idea of corporate cops and stuff like that, you know? And it's like, I, I think those, those are some of the strongest points that I think more hits. And it's like, yeah, this, this movie is ultimately very messy, but I think when it, when it lands its points is when it really shines as yeah. a terrific piece of, as a terrific essay, I think it's, yeah. you know, it's almost, you know, it's hard to call this a documentary. It's more of an essay. And, uh, but I mean, it, it is, it's a documentary in the sense that it's also dealing with real world subjects too. And I think that's, that's ultimately where it places itself in this particular conversation. Yeah, I, I agree. I definitely agree. Um, it's, I would say, it's also a, a, a must-see for, for everybody. And I believe that, that that's the thing that I don't expect uh, a documentary to, to tell me how I should feel, maybe. But I think that most people, if they're, they pay attention close enough, mm -hmm. you know, you can separate one thing from the other and, and uh, the shaft from the weed and, and, and you can see, you know, I might not agree with everything that you're saying or everything that you're doing, but I think you're raising some valid points and I think yeah. there are facts to what you're saying. And I think that's really important. Yeah. So we're going to get away from heavier subjects such as Definitely. property <laughs> and uh, gun violence. And we're going to get into something a little bit more fun here uh, with Carlo's next pick. And what is that? So uh, definitely on the opposite opposite side of the spectrum <laughs> for this one, but my next choice was the King of Kong: A Fistful of Quarters. This was released in 2007, directed by Seth Gordon, and this documentary chronicles the head-to-head -head battle, so to speak, between two arcade players fighting for the the record in Donkey Kong, the mm -hmm. arcade game. You have a novice called Steve Weeby and the champion, the reigning champion, which is called Billy Mitchell. Mm -hmm. And 
I, I saw this documentary in 2011, I think, and, and I rewatched it a couple of years after. And I, the, the reason I bring it, it's that I think it's one of the most entertaining and most mm. engaging documentaries I've seen. It's, um, whenever I recommend documentaries, this is usually the one I go for. Yeah. Because I think it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And I love how Gordon takes these characters, these real-life characters, and manages to create a true, a real-life hero-villain story mm-hmm. <laughs> out of this real-life battle. And yeah, you can say maybe some things and some points of view might be manipulated, but when you look at the real story behind, you <laughs> see you see how this man, I, I, I wrote in, in one of the reviews I wrote about this back in 2011, I wrote, uh, Billy Mitchell is one of the most despicable <laughs> villains ever. Yeah. <laughs> because, because he is, I mean, and you read, real life accounts of him and he seems to be a bit of an asshole maybe i don't know if mm-hmm. i can say that but i'm sorry oh that's that's fine yeah we we, <laughs> we allow we allow cursing on this podcast okay so <laughs> and, and and to what we just said a while ago it's an underdog story yeah. and weeby is the perfect underdog he really uh, is so humble so uh the way he's portrayed he's you, you gotta root for him and the way he manufactures this story of them going against the other, and you see how everything is stacked against Weeby from pretty much every aspect, mm-hmm. um, from the 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 way the the, the guys at Twin Galaxies uh, engineered or, or, or allowed Mitchell to do some things that they didn't allow wow. Weeby, and all that kind of things. You. There's no way you, you wouldn't be rooting for Weeby at this. No. But it's really, it's a lot of fun. It's it's a really engaging documentary. I think even even if, you, if you're not an arcade player, I don't think you have to be. Um, but I think it's very, very enjoyable, and I think it's one of the most fun documentaries I've seen. Well, I think this film, and I, I, yeah, there are very, yeah, there, I mean, there are actually quite a few documentaries that you would consider entertaining. And I think this one is, this one is gleefully so, and I think that's what makes it work so effectively um, because of the fact that it doesn't intend to be anything other than a real-life sports movie is essentially what it is. And uh, you can completely put this in the same vein of, like, Rocky or The Karate Kid and in in that genre, and it works. And because of the fact that, um, you know, and... I, there isn't enough to be, there, there's often not enough, uh, attention given to documentaries that are just fun or have a subject about them that is, that is entertaining. Cause it's like competitive video gaming. Yeah, you're right. That, you know, most people can, you know, I enjoy playing video games, but it's like, I would never do it competitively, but it's like, I, if you aren't enjoying, if you don't play video games, how do you get into the subject of this? Well, you get a hero and you get a protagonist. And Steve Weeby is a, like you said, Steve Weeby is a perfect hero, a perfect underdog for this. And 
Billy Mitchell is true. I mean, I, I, I put in my notes that he is such a dick. Uh, he, he did eventually get cheat. He did eventually get outed as a cheater. Um, yeah. long after afterwards. And, uh, you, you honestly can't help but feel glad about that because of the fact that the way he behaves in this entire film, it's, uh, it's just not a, he's not somebody that you come away and, you know, sort of, and I do think to a certain, you're, you're right to a certain extent, it is somewhat manipulative, but at the same time, it's like you completely believe that Billy is somebody who just he he doesn't have to prove himself to this person. He and you yeah. you realize and you see the way that people say it's like he's scared to go up against him because he doesn't actually want to lose. And it's like he's genuinely frightened to lose. And it's like you completely believe that whenever you see Billy. And it's like he's the way he's the way he's trying to toy with Steve in uh in that last stretch. And it's like, <coughs> I love that this is, I love the use of 80s songs in this, the 80s uh, sports songs in this to really sort of play up the sports genre aspect of it. You know, and Donkey Kong is, I, you know, and it's funny because I never really thought, I never really thought of Donkey Kong as a video game adaptation of King Kong until this and I had seen it before but it'd been a long time but uh it is really such an entertaining movie and uh it, I I can see why somebody would recommend this to somebody like if they're not a huge fan to uh documentaries why you would recommend this to some somebody because of the fact that it does feel like it it's not as heavy as some certainly some of the other documentaries that were talking about but it's also very entertaining as well as very authentically emotional and i i think that's that's one of the great things about steve in this movie is that you really do get a connection with his arc in this in terms of going through this experience of um of trying to be one of the best of trying to be recognized as one of the best and uh I, I think that's it's it's such a it's such a beautiful it's such a simple story and it is is such an entertaining story as well. Yeah, and, and, and it goes to what we were saying, obviously on a different different wavelength, but to what we were talking about in, in Hoop Dreams, in that it's not necessarily about who wins in the end mm -hmm. because in the end at, at least when the documentary ends not not what we get with the closing lines but uh steve doesn't get the record no so it's not necessarily about that but it's how we see how he how he deals with this challenge that he's being faced with mm -hmm. And how he handles it, and he handles it extremely well, um, yeah. as well as as anybody would handle any any challenge in any other facet of life. But on the other hand, you you get this this Billy Mitchell, who's doing everything. I mean, I understand what you said, and and it, it's so perfect. I mean, the way he dresses, his yeah. mullet, <laughs> his, his beard, it's a, an iconic villain. Yeah. <laughs> I love one scene when he first, when they get to this, the, the, the tournament and 
he, he uh, Weeby is playing and and Billy arrives and everybody's like, oh, Billy's here, Billy's here. And I love that you can see the subtle fear in Billy mm-hmm. because you see how he enters and he pretty much ignores and walks around yeah. uh, where, where Weeby is because he doesn't want to face it. Yeah. Because like I said, he doesn't want to lose. Uh, he's holding to this, this record uh, um, for dear life. And, and you see uh, that to, to what I said, how they are both dealing with that, how I'm fa- how Weeby faces this challenge and how uh, Billy faces this challenge. And I think it's, it's great in that way. Uh, and, and again, it's something that I think everybody can root for and something that everybody can enjoy. Yeah. No, it, it, it really is. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, if you're, if you're a fan of video games, I can't imagine you not seeing this by now because it's even it's it's a shame it's not more readily available though because of the fact that I mean I I I you know this feels like it would be you would think this would be in constant streaming rotation but it's not it's unfortunate but uh, you know it it's it's just such a fun movie and uh, it really is it it gets to it it gets to I think the heart of what makes somebody like Steve Weeby an inspirational individual because of the fact that it's like, there is a passion to them to succeed even. And it's something that even his wife, she tries to understand, but even then you're even then there are moments where it's like, she's not sure she even understands. And it's like, it's just playing video games. It's so much more than that though. And uh, (laughs) I I think that is, I I think that's what's, I, I think, and seeing her react to how his the times that he does end up failing in this movie um is it 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 gets to the heart of what this is what what a uh what positive relationship in and what having a support system is so important to for people and it's like, yeah. even if you don't succeed at this one thing that you've wanted to succeed at, it's like, you know what? I don't think any less of you. And it's like, that's that's the important thing to get around. But yeah, King of Kong, Fistful of Quarters, it, it is, it, it's, it's weird in a lot of ways, but, and I love that there, I like, love that there are also ideas of, um, spying and espionage and stuff like that. And it's funny that this was, this was short. This was right around the time of the uh, Spygate controversy with the Patriots during that undefeated season they had. And it's like, just the idea that it's like, Oh, Bill Mitchell, Billy Mitchell was just so convinced that like something (laughs) that somebody had to cheat to break his record. That it's like, he's sends people over to, tear apart his video game. It's like, good Lord. He, he is, I mean, it looks like he hasn't dressed any other way since the <laughs> 1980s. And it's, it's perfect. Like you, like you said, it's absolutely, he's the perfect villain for this type of movie. Yeah. And, and, it, and it even appeals to that because you see, I mean, it's like we is more grassroots and yeah. 
Billy is more corporate. <laughs> I mean, and, and it, it appeals to that, to that you know, uh, uh, the, the, the little company, the little business versus yeah. the, the big company. <laughs> so it, it goes to that, to that uh, uh, antagonism. Uh, it, it works really great. Yeah, I mean, it's basically every underdog story in the 1980s. I mean, that's that's basically yeah. what it is. And yeah, yeah. I, I love that it touches into that nostalgia and with with the use of songs, with the way that it's structured and stuff like that. It's like, I, yeah. I but yeah, it's uh, it's it's such a fun movie. And I, 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 I agree. It's it's one that's definitely worth checking out. Um, I'm, I'm glad that you brought this because it gave me a chance to rewatch the movie, which I hadn't done in a while. And it is is it's just such a fun documentary. It's it's one of the it and it's a movie that just reminds you that it's like sometimes even documentaries can be fun. And uh, you know, it's like we we've got a lot of hefty heavy subjects uh here in the rest yeah. of our choices. So having one where it's like, oh this is this is almost like popcorn movie documentary. And it's like you don't really yeah. get that too often. But uh yeah it's yeah. it's definitely a crowd pleaser in every sense of the word. Um, so we're going to go to my third choice, and this actually came out in 2005. It is from the great Werner Herzog, uh, and it is his 2005 film about the life and death of Timothy Treadwell in Grizzly Man. I, this is, you know, I, I had a uh, friend of mine that I worked with who was absolutely a fan of Herzog's work, and I actually saw Grizzly Man with them for the first time in theaters. And um, one of the things that's interesting about Herzog is he is he is a filmmaker who uh, he he goes between narrative films and documentaries, and I think that's that's always really interesting when you see a filmmaker do that. Scorsese's done some documentaries. Spike Lee obviously has done some documentaries. Um, and to see, but the thing that's unique about Herzog, I think, and one of the things that I think makes him the best, one of the best in both the narrative realm as well as the documentary realm is that there's an authenticity to his narrative films. There's also a level of, it's hard to imagine that the documentary, the stories he's telling his documentaries are true, they almost don't feel real that somebody would actually do that, and yet somebody actually did that. And then you think of something like Fitzcarraldo or A Gear of Wrath of God, where he actually had his actors build, you know, he basically did carry a, you know, an opera house from one river to another in Fitzcarraldo. He yeah. really did have those people on rafts and a gear wrath of god and it's it's and the the life of timothy treadwell who spent 13 years going into alaska and spending summers with the bears that were in this uh animal uh this uh animal sanctuary and this this really and herzog her first of all herzog is one of the best voices in movie history he yeah. truly does <laughs> he like he's he's somebody where it's like you know i i would love to be uh you know if 
you know, a lot of people will say, oh, yeah, Morgan Freeman would be great to narrate my life. It's like, I'd be interested <laughs> to hear what Werner Herzog has to think about it. Um, and uh, I, I love that um, you do feel like you're watching a filmmaker discover kindred spirit in Timothy Treadwell, uh, who did these things that are just absolutely nuts, spending all this time with bears and but it's something they genuinely loves and i uh, you know and it's it's but at the same time you you look at the way he died and you go well of course he did that was bound to happen at some point how is what was your first yeah. experience watching uh grizzly man was it for this podcast or do you see him before no, 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 I actually saw it for the first time uh, two two nights ago. Um, oh, okay. I, I was I, I wanted to to I've been hearing great things about it for a long time. So when you brought it up, I said, you know, I'm gonna watch it and and, and see what it's about. And it, this is my second Herzog documentary um, that I saw. Lo and behold, a couple of years ago, I think okay. it was last yeah. year, and that's right uh, right uh, up my alley because I work IT. Uh, and I thought it was really interesting. And this is my sixth, counting the documentaries, I think my, my sixth film of, of Herzog. Um, but one of the things that I like about the documentary, it's, and this is something he does in most of his other films, is that he takes characters that are interesting, but conflicted in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, conflicted by, by some... Uh, whether it's uh, aspirations, insanity, or or, or just uh, inner demons or of some sorts, and he tries to get inside their minds. Yeah. He tries to get you know. I want to see what makes this this guy tick. Mm-hmm. I want to see what what moves him and and what drives him. And I really really liked it. I really enjoyed it, and I love how Herzog assembled the documentary because uh, for the first half, pretty much the first half of the documentary, he follows Wells' idealized and sentimental version of nature and he's just showing you how he's playing with the foxes and how he's playing with the bears and swimming mm-hmm. with them and just, uh, but Towards the, towards the midpoint of the of the documentary, he starts digging into his mind. He starts showing what he thinks and 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 how he goes in this more or less existential ramblings about about life and whatnot. And towards the end, towards the second half, he shows more his vulnerability and his anger and, and more fierce rants, like the one he throws at the at the park service, where he pretty much loses it and, and, yeah. and goes full on against the, the, the Rangers. And I love how Herzog is showing you all the sides of the of the of the character, and he's letting us decide what we think. But he also offers his—I mean, he doesn't shy away from 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 judging him. Yeah. Not not judging him, but but you know, he offers his his perspective and say, you know, I differ with Timothy and this and this and this, and, and I think. Uh, this is, he shouldn't have done this or he should have done this any yeah. other way. But I love how we see and we're allowed to see the impact that this 
choice of life had in him. I mean, mm. he was a man that was in drugs, that had, uh, and, and this is just coming to my mind right now, but it goes to the same point that we've been touching on uh, in some of the previous documentaries. How do I adjust myself when my goals doesn't work out mm -hmm. the way I wanted to? Because you see that, you know, this, this man uh, wanted to be an actor and allegedly he auditioned for, for, uh, for Cheers and was beat up for the yeah. role of the bartender by Woody Harrelson. I don't know how, if that's true, but mm -hmm. that's what he says. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, he ended up in drugs, he ended up in whatever. And how he adjusted himself after that, and I love one of the, one of the quotes that I love about it, is uh, at one point in the middle of the documentary, he says, I didn't have a life, now I have a life. Mm -hmm. And that, that quote touched me because as misguided as his <laughs> endeavors might have been, yeah. Uh, you see that he felt fulfilled mm -hmm. and he had a passion and he had a drive to do something that he believed was right. Yeah. And I, I think that that's commendable, again, as misguided as it might have been, but, but I think it says a lot about him as a, as a person, as a mm -hmm. human being. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. And, um, no, I, I think, you know, the and I had forgotten about the fact that he was he had supposedly been an alcoholic, he had had addiction issues. And honestly, it's like when you think about it in that perspective of a recovering alcoholic, somebody who's recovering with those addictive issues, uh, when your life doesn't work out, it makes sense that somebody like with his personality would almost go to something where that's just so absolutely insane and find comfort in it. And it's like, you know, I don't necessarily know if, I don't necessarily know that I would say he had death wish, but he had to know that at a certain point, there's a possibility those bears are eating you. And yeah, yeah, it's yeah, and and there's a lot of things because you know, I mean, obviously you're 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 playing with bears, uh, a creature that is wild, savage, and, and can pretty much kill you, just just like what happened. But also, I love that Herzog raises a question: if he had left at the time he was supposed to leave the sanctuary. Would this have happened? Yeah. Because he left, he, he returned. Apparently he had some issues with the with the um, travel agency or something. Yeah. And he returned out of season, not the season that he was mm -hmm. accustomed to. The bears that he was used to were already in, in hibernation. And and one of the reasons that, that some experts argue that what happened happened yeah. is that the, the bears at that time, it was in October, are more wild, are more aggressive because they're they're gathering food to prepare for hibernation, so they're more more desperate to get ready for that. Mm -hmm. And and so so you can you can also wonder that what if I mean what would have happened if he hadn't returned? Would he still be alive and doing this thing that he that he's doing? So there are a lot of a lot of 
things to look at that are really, really interesting. And I thought it was a, 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 an impressive documentary. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny with it, the reputation of Herzog that Herzog has as far as going to the extremes when it comes to his narrative films. You think about the history with Klaus Kinski and his films. You think about Vizcarraldo and Garrett Wrath of God that he would that he would make sure we that he would simply show us listening with him listening to Timothy Treadwell's death as opposed to playing it is tremendous restraint and honestly I I think is about as it's I mean, you can you can see a dozen other filmmakers making that like the centerpiece of the movie is presenting that. Like, I mean, think about all the documentaries we have of 9-11 where it's like we just are seeing the towers come down all the time. And um, it's it's just one of those things where it's like, uh, you know, there's it's it says something about Herzog and it might be, it, you know, and it's probably the story and it's probably the way that he doesn't it's probably part of his way that he doesn't want to show he doesn't want to be exploiting what happened with Timothy Treadwell in his film and certainly and because of the fact that it wasn't just Timothy Treadwell who died that day I, I I think that's a huge part of it but it's also one of the most powerful images in the entire film is us just watching him listen to it and then afterwards saying oh you must never listen to it as if the friend is ever going to listen to it ever because i i can't imagine anybody wanting to do that um but i i love that there are i love that pretty much the entire most of the images that we get here are timothy's the ones that he filmed and uh it's a lot of stuff i mean yeah we get panoramas and stuff like that there's obviously some beautiful imagery. I love the fact, I love the, um, I love what we're seeing of this landscape. It, you can see why somebody would want to go back summer after summer, and then you realize, oh, hey, he's living with the bears. I'm not sure I would feel comfortable with that. <laughs> but um, no, I, you know, it, it's, you you love the, uh you you love I I I I love um you know Herzog has a lot of praise for him as a filmmaker and Timothy Treadwell was a yeah. filmmaker and I I think that's a lot of that is justified when you look at some of the more improvised moments uh that he captured and uh there you know and not to say that he's um you know, not to say that Timothy Treadwell will have necessarily been a great filmmaker like a Werner Herzog, but it's like there are even even filmmakers who are middling are capable of moments of like genuine beauty, genuine imagination, especially with something like documentaries where it's like you you are sometimes you're gonna capture a moment you didn't expect to capture. And I think that's one of the things that is uh just lovely about this. Um yeah, Herzog is Herzog is a beast of a storyteller. He he always has been. He's always uh his next documentary after this was uh Encounters at the End of the World, 
which he dedicated to Roger Ebert. Um, uh, and that was when Roger Ebert was going through his health issues. And uh, it was, you know, and I, I love the, and if it, Roger Ebert is a big reason why I gravitate towards uh, <coughs> her talk. And um, it was, it's one of those things watching, the more you watch about Herzog, the more you see that there's there's something very particular about his films, whether it's a documentary like Grizzly Man or, you know, and he, he's told different stories different ways. Like he, he told the same, he told, you know, his documentary Little Dieter Learned to Fly was he eventually sort of did a fictionalized version of that similar story in Rescue Dawn. And it's interesting to see those two movies and to see how uh, how he approaches the Hollywood version of it in Rescue Dawn versus how he plays the uh, the lot real life version in Little Dieter Learns to Fly. It's fascinating, and uh, I think that's one of the things that makes him such a special documentarian. Yeah, I, I you know. Rescue Dawn was the first film I saw of his um, mm. back shortly after it was released. And I have to admit it was a bit of a turnoff. Um, yeah. the, the film was, it wasn't bad, but I didn't think it was great. But what really turned me off was reading about the real life of, <laughs> of Dieter Dengler yeah. and how he manipulated some facts mm. for the sake of his narrative film and how he manipulated the truth of some of these people that were with Dieter just to maybe idolize him because he clearly uh, admired him. Yeah. And, and, and I must, I must say that it was a bit of a turnoff and it took me a while to decide to, to get into his other films, more praise films like Aguirre or, or, or Fitzcarraldo, which I, both of which I saw like uh, a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and I love both. Um, but but he definitely takes a liking to his characters, yeah. uh, whether they are real life or or, or or fictional, and that's something that you can cre- clearly see with with Timothy, and and I definitely think that he sees maybe himself as a young man, as a young documentarian making all the crazy things that he made when he was younger. Uh, maybe a, a, a bit of uh, parallelism um, with, with all the crazy things that, that Timothy was doing himself. Yeah. So maybe that, that's uh, a bit of why he highlighted all the things that Timothy was doing as a filmmaker or as a documentarian. And, and I admire that from, from Herzog, whatever uh, I think of some of his decisions, like for example, what I said in Rescue Dawn, but but I admire that the the way he approaches his characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, and I I think I you know and I feel like you know probably some of those things that you were talking about in Rescue Dawn. I wonder how much of that was him just thinking, oh well, I've you know it's like I've I've shown Dieter's story you know in documentary form. Because in that case, the documentary did come first, and it's like, oh well. So here's a fictionalized version, and it's like, you know, it, it's funny because especially in the recent years, as some of his more 
fictionalized films, it's like you sort of get away from some of the authenticity. But at the same time, I think it's 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 always interesting to and he has become more interested in documentary over the past decade and a half or so. Um and I think that's more where his I, I think that's where more where his voice uh naturally would have yeah. led him. And yeah. uh you know, you, you see the you see people like Timothy Treadwell and uh Dieter Dangler and um yeah, it, it makes it makes a lot of sense that he, he would uh gravitate towards those. So that will bring us to our final uh documentary discussion and this is gonna be a good one. This was my first time watching it actually. Uh, Carlo, what was your third choice? So my third and final choice is a documentary from 2016 by Kirsten Johnson, and it's called Camera Person. This documentary uh, was recommended by a good intern friend uh, called Brian, and he he recommended this to me uh, several years ago. I saw it in 2017. Um, and it uh, Kirsten Johnson is a cinematographer. She has worked with Michael Moore on, on various documentaries. She has worked with, with uh, several other uh, filmmakers as a cinematographer. And this documentary chronicles her 25-year career and presents footage of her work of, on, on, on all these documentaries spliced with personal footage of her family, uh, her, her, her kids, her mother, showing like, like a, a collage of her career, of her life. And I, I always say it's one of the most emotional pieces of cinema I, I've seen, mm -hmm. which is impressive considering that, the, the, I mean, again, there's not, not a, a structured narrative it's just bits and pieces of different documentaries, unrelated documentaries. There's little dialogue. Mm -hmm. And yet, I, I believe that all these images speak for themselves. And, and there's a power to all the little bits of life that you see in all the, the, the little things that she puts, especially the bits with her mother, which I think were, were the most uh, touching or the most poignant mm -hmm. um and and there there are for example there are there are uh, there's footage of um an up-and-coming boxer and how he's frustrated about losing fight there's a footage of a family struggling for survival in post-war bosnia there's a footage of a nigerian newborn uh, struggling to breathe mm -hmm. uh, and and one of the things that I got out of this is that everybody's struggling to live or, or, or survive in some way, achieve something, uh, breathe. And, and that's, those struggles are shared by everyone. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you're in, it doesn't matter if you're in Bosnia, if you're in Nigeria, if you're in the U.S., in Puerto Rico, or, or anywhere else. We all want to live, we all want to breathe, we all want to survive and, and achieve something. And Kirsten Johnson achieves that and, and drives that message with only these images that she splices together. And it's, it's really powerful. It's really mm -hmm. powerful, like I said, from a, from a newborn wanting to breathe 
to her mother struggling to to remember things. Yeah. It's it's really powerful. Yeah, this is this is this is sort of it, it's funny because of the fact that it's like this is sort of like four of the movies we've talked about are very much very conventional documentaries. I I think, you know, we we both kind of talked about Bowling for Columbine. I look at that as more of an essay, sort of a political essay from a visual from a uh, narrative standpoint. Um, this one is very much more of a tone poem, but uh, I I think that's why it's so powerful because of the fact that I think you know one of the things that I think I love about what Kirsten Johnson does in this movie is, and if you're not familiar with her name, she also did did. Dick Johnson's dead a couple of years ago about her father's uh, last last years in um, his struggles with uh, Alzheimer's and um, or dementia actually I think it was dementia I mean they both operate in very same ways yeah. but okay. um, yeah. yeah and so uh, the fact that she's using. I one of the things that's so intriguing about this, and one of the reasons I think this is a, this is very much a must see, especially whether, especially if you're a filmmaker, especially if you love filmmaker films and you want to make filmmaker want to make films. I think this is an important thing to watch because um, one of the things that I think Johnson does so well in this film is she she shows how camera placement can impact everything in how a particular moment lands with us. And the, the moment that comes to mind especially is when she is talking to the young girl who's pregnant who's wanting to get an abortion. We never see her face. We just see her from the waist down. And it is as, it is as impactful in discussing that process and thinking through that process as the questionnaire scene in uh, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, that people were justly devastated by in that film. And I, I think it's one of the most powerful moments, not just because of the fact that it's this profound life and death situation, but the way Johnson films it. And the way she follows the baby who's just newborn, basically out of the womb, you know, and they're trying to keep her alive. And, you know, the footage with her mother, and she makes several trips back to, she, she makes several trips back to Bosnia. And I, I, I think yeah. if there's one sort of through line in this movie, it's that she, she returns to Bosnia and she returns to those, uh, worn torn areas over and over and seeing sort of an evolution in how life there has been impacted by the events over the years. And, um, you know, this film, this film actually kind of remind me of uh, Richard Linkler's Waking Life, which is, you know, now that, granted, that is a narrative that's based on it's an idea that Linkletter had where it's like this person continually in a dream state can't get out of the dream. But the what makes me think of that when it comes to camera person is the fact that it this movie moves from moments to moments. Like you said, it's not a narrative, it's not a linear structure in terms of a story. It's being 
told. It's from moment to moment, and each moment seems to build upon a, the other, the moment before. And you get, and so as, especially as we get more and more into Kirsten Johnson's personal life, as the story goes on, it's like you really see sort of the overall effect. And I love that she has, she, you know, she has this uh, title card where it's like, this is, you know, sort of like, look at this as kind of a memoir of, you know, who I, who I am. And I think that's one of the things that's so beautiful about what this is, is being able to express herself in this way with these images is really impactful. Yeah, I definitely agree. And it's, it's, I mean, there are several, several ways, several moments throughout the, the, the film that, that I find myself moved. And again, you see this constant struggle to 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 survive and it's something that that i mean we've seen through ironically through all all or most of the of the documentaries that we've been talking about you see that struggle to do something to achieve something to live to 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 achieve a record to um uh, live with the bears or to be a basketball player or whatever. And it's beautiful how she manages to, to piece together all these images in a way that feels like, I, I love what you said about, it feels like a poem. And it feels that way, it feels um, poetic, even without that narrative structure, but you can see what she's driving to and you can see her heart put into fully put into this mm -hmm. and it's it's a documentary again that always moves me this is another one that I, I always have a hard time speaking about just because of that just because of how much it moves me how much yeah. how emotional it is and that's why I, why I wanted to bring it up oh and I'm, I'm glad you did it is available on the Criterion channel uh, it's, I'm, I'm glad I got a chance to see it. And, uh, it's, 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 yeah, I agree. I, I think it's, it's just a beautiful, it, it's a, it's a beautiful little study. It, even if nothing else, it's just a beautiful study in how moving pictures can impact us. And even if they have, even if on the surface they have nothing in common with one another, uh, how they essentially combine if you put one in front of the other. And it's like you you look at you you look at you you listen to the words of the woman, uh the the young woman struggling about whether she should get an abortion, what what that decision is. You you Think about the experience of watching life being born, and you you think of the struggles in war torn areas that these families and these people are having to go through. It's like 
it all and like like you said, and it's one of the things that's so wonderful about this is it's all about it's all about connecting people who ultimately want to live. And I I think that is and seeing what some people do and how some people react when it comes to choices of life and death and or just living from day to day. And it's it's it it is is just a beautiful documentary. I'm I'm glad you brought to us because of the fact that to this discussion because of the fact that it's so outside of the realm of what we're doing what we're seeing with a lot of these other films which are more narrative and they have more of a narrative but at the same time it's the purest form of cinema we have here because of the fact yeah. that it's all about the images and uh like i said it's on the criterion channel it's very well recommended especially if you saw dick johnson's dead and uh you wanted to see more of hers that's it's it it actually makes an it makes for a very interesting uh one two punch with those two because of the fact that i mean there's also some personal aspects with uh with uh her family in this and it's it it really is kind of beautiful um before we wrap up uh what what are some other documentaries that are some of your favorites that we haven't talked about well there are a couple that that I thought I mean I chose this three because I wanted to highlight three different aspects I mean I chose Hoop Dreams because I think it's important an important documentary I chose a camera person because I think it's very emotional and personally one of the ones that has touched me most and I chose King of Kong because it's a lot of fun it's so I wanted I wanted to cover those three aspects but some others that that came to mind are um, 13 from Awa Duvernay. It was a really powerful documentary um, about the, the, the 13th Amendment and racial situations in, in the United States. There's one that I want to highlight because it really moved me and I don't think it's um, talked about much, but it's from 2005 called Back to Bosnia, speaking about Bosnia. Okay. Uh, it's, it's from a, I, I know I'm going to pronounce this the wrong way, but it's directed by Sabina Bashraka. And it's about a family that was displaced from her, from their home uh, in the Bosnian war in the early nineties. And they're returning to, after the war ends, they return to their home only to find that their home has been uh, taken over by another family. And um, th their efforts to retake uh, their home are obviously parallelist with how they want to retake their life, uh, return to, to uh, war-torn Bosnia. And it's really interesting. I mean, I, I have to say it, it didn't impress me much as it went on, but for some reason, the final act really, really got to me. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, and I'm, I always uh, recommend it. Uh, I think it's really, really powerful. Um, Enron, the smartest guys in the room, is yeah. another one that I think is really, really good and, and infuriating. <laughs> as, as only Alex Gibney can be. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I want to end with one that I think is 
I don't want to say fun, but but a, a sports-oriented one, and it's Catching Hell, also from Alex Gibney. Uh, I don't know if you heard of this one, but it chronicles the events surrounding the uh, Steve, Bar Steve Bartman in the Chicago Cubs uh, game, the guy that, that interfered with the ball, that, uh, the foul ball. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, okay. I yeah. I think I've heard about. Yeah, I think I've heard about it, but yeah. I, I think it's uh, um, if you're into sports or if you're into baseball or if you live this incident as I lived it when it when it happened, um, it, it, it's really good. But I think it will work anyway if you're not fully into sports because I love how Gibney uses this event to to make a point about scapegoats and how yeah. we look for 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 people to blame for different situations that might happen. Um, and, and he keeps it in sports, but he, he does shoot some arrows here and there about how we blame things on other people, how we like to blame things on other people. And I think it's really, really good. Mm -hmm. There, this was, this was one of the hardest, like, like I said at the outset, this was one of the hardest, uh, subjects I think I've ever had to try to prepare to talk about because they're, there's so many amazing documentaries I would love to have brought up. And, but at the same time, it's like, I kept, I kept coming back to these three because the three that I chose not only are from major filmmakers in the uh, genre, but also I think are very interesting explorations of what the genre is uh, capable of. But um, I'm, I'm looking at, I'm, I'm basically looking at some of the, ones that I've reviewed over the years that I would have loved to have talked about. I would have loved... Spike Lee made a powerful one in Four Little Girls. And you have his When the Levees Break about Katrina. That was amazing. You have the Paradise Lost trilogy about the uh, the West Memphis Three. Um, you have Theremin Electronic Odyssey, which was absolutely fascinating. There's Everest, the IMAX documentary about the tragic... Um, Everest Expedition uh, from 1996, I believe. Uh, two that I really would have loved to have talked about, but again, I didn't necessarily bring up because of the availability. Uh, Integrate Silence, where a filmmaker gets to spend time with a, a secluded uh, sect of Carthusian monks, and it's just absolutely mesmerizing. In the Realms of the Unreal, the Mystery of Henry Darger about one of the most unusual experimental uh, artists known to man. Michael Abdet's up, up, up series, which was another one that was long championed by Ebert. Um, rest in peace from Michael Abdet. Uh, that we're not going to probably get another one there. Um... And then just in the past few years, uh, I would there's a uh, documentary a friend of mine, uh, a filmmaker friend of mine, made that it's a documentary short that I absolutely love. It's called Jay. It's about a uh, painter who went through some trauma and how that comes through in his art. It's beautiful. I'm not your Negro is fantastic. Uh, there's a documentary feature called The Fourth Kingdom that I love. Won't you be my neighbor? About Mister Rogers. The Minding the Gap, uh, The Painter and the Thief from last year, Feels Good Man, 
from last year. I mean, there's so many ter- terrific documentaries. I I mean, I these any one of these any of these would have been fantastic ones to talk about in depth. Um by I I think the thing that I love about the ones that we did talk about is that they are representative of typically what people think about when they come to when they think about documentaries and also sometimes what they don't necessarily think about. And I love that we were able to talk about camera person. I love we were talking about Grizzly Man and what Herzog does in telling somebody else's story with their own footage, uh, as opposed to necessarily his footage. Uh, we've got Hoop Dreams, which ended up being much more comprehensive than the filmmakers initially intended, and we are better off for it. Um, Vernon, Florida, which is simple and short and is a sign of the great talent and imagination of Earl Morris in the choices that he ch- he makes. King of Kong, which is just an entertaining documentary for the sake of entertaining an audience and to show us great passion in victory and defeat. And then you have um, Bowling for Columbine, which is about as mess- messy a political movie as you could ask for in the modern day and uh that's there's no other way that i would kind of want it there's no other way to make it uh other than messy um but yeah carlo thank you very much for bringing this subject to me i absolutely love i as tortured as i was coming up with my three for this this subject i i'm glad that it gave me a chance to really think about this subject and just how much, how many documentaries I love over the years and uh, how much, how many mean that much to me. And uh, thank you very much for joining me. And it's, it's been a pleasure to talk to you about these. No, thank you for having me. And and I really love your, your three choices. I mean, the only one I had seen it was a bowling for Columbine and I really, really enjoyed um, watching the other two these last few days and, and, and talking about them today. Yeah. Uh, before we before we go, one last, uh, where can people find you on the web and where can people find you on the podcasting? Yeah, the, the main place that people can reach me and the podcast is Twitter. I'm on Twitter at TFCGT and the podcast is at TMML2021. The it, if you look at my bios in both places, you can find links to the podcast. But the podcast can also be find at, found at tmml.busproud.com. Or if you write Thief's Monthly Movie Loot on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podchaser, or most of the main podcast platforms, uh, you can find it. Um, I'm going through a soft rebranding and I'm changing a bit the title to the movie loot, simply the movie loot. Okay. So you might see that, that, that change, um, in, in the next few months. But right now, if you, if you type on Spotify or Apple podcast, Steve's monthly movie loot, you, you, you can reach it. Okay. Excellent. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. I'd like to thank Carlo for joining me today on the podcast to discuss these documentaries. It's, it was a, pleasure to be able to do so and uh i do plan on having him back on the podcast in the future um and as well as hopefully uh guessing on his podcast as well that's going to do it for the end of this episode of the sonic cinema podcast thank you very much for joining me 
And uh, you can check us out at uh, Apple, Google, and Spotify, as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can also uh, check us out on patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema, live streaming at twitch.tv backslash Scuttle Lemur, and more importantly, the main hub of www.sonic-cinema.com. Thank you very much, and I hope you have a good rest of the day. Thank you.